Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I know I sound like a circus announcer, but that's because you're just in time for the show. This is Larry Charles, one half of the Game Dev Unchained podcast team, bringing you the freshest and newest podcast about game developers, game development, and the lifestyle thereof. And it's a two-man duo. I'm not here by myself. I'm never here by myself. Helping me bring you this awesome podcast and another shameless plug. I got to stop. <laughs> He's actually the two-time Philharmonic oboe champion of the West Coast. None other than Mr. Brandon Fan. What's up, everybody? Taking a break from my oboe. <laughs> this is Brandon Fan. Welcome to this week's episode. Bringing along with me a special guest, Sean Han Tani. Hey, Hi, everyone. I'm Sean. How you doing, Sean? How's it going? Good. Thanks for joining us, man. So this is the part of the podcast, Sean, where we ask our guests, such as yourself, a little bit of background and resume or what you've been doing, what you're doing in the future, just to give a little uh, context to our listeners out there. Yeah. So my background, uh, I started working on games during college about uh, how many years ago now? Seven, seven years ago, about. Um. After a few years, I released a, one of the more popular games, Anodyne, in 2013, and then been working on games since. And then, then uh, about two years ago, I also started teaching part-time at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, teaching okay. um, game music composition and uh, a little bit of game design. So I do that, and then I also work on um, my studio's projects. Dude, awesome, man. How do you like being a? Oh, sorry. Let me jump in. How do you like being a teacher, going you know through the system, and now like offering the the new padawans, you know the way? Oh yeah, it's it's interesting um, because it's nice to like be able to try and think about my own process and like Mm -hmm. give that back to people who are just starting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do feel like for me, I have to like you know take some time off from teaching and just go back to just you know, working on game stuff and then maybe learn a bit more and come back with more to teach. But it's been, it's been good. I mean, music especially is pretty fun to teach because mm-hmm. the students are really uh, talented. Oh, um, awesome. But uh, game, game design is pretty hard to teach. It's just, <laughs> uh, at least the school I'm at, it's pretty hard because um, you have to use Max and mm-hmm. it usually means we have to use Unity, which is kind of like, it's too hard for beginners but mm-hmm. yeah so uh which which college did you go to uh, i went to the university of chicago in oh. um chicago <laughs> so you, you pretty much grew up in chicago then i'm guessing yeah i i lived in southern california a little bit as a kid but then pretty much just the suburbs of chicago and then about eight years ago i moved to chicago and i've kind of just been here since oh nice so has indie been your path since college like just wanting to just make your own games be your own boss kind of man your own hours type of thing yeah uh since college so in college i originally wanted to do like math and computer science stuff but uh i slowly tried out all the different iterations of that and didn't really like it and uh a few years into college, I got more serious into like making a game for a commercial release. And then that went pretty well. So we made enough money to kind of go full time for a while. And um, it was pretty easy for a few years because of how well the first game did. But in recent years, um, you know, I've had to pick up some teaching work and then also think a lot more seriously about how to manage the business side. So um, I found that I kind of had it easy for a few years. Mm-hmm. And then in recent years, I've really like realized, okay, you know, I really have to start um, taking it even more seriously than I had before mm-hmm. because uh, it's really hard to make uh, 
two people's incomes, which is not surprising, I guess, but it's, um, feels harder than it should be, but yeah, I don't know. Mm. Do you mind kind of walking us through your journey, uh, before making and debuting your first game anodyne? Like how was that decision made the inception of it and how many months did it take overall or years? Um, that, so before anodyne came out, I had been making, let's see, I think I had been making small games for about nine months. Mm-hmm. And then I started Anodyne because I wanted to um, make a bigger game. Because mm-hmm. I had, been, I had make, been making small games before that. I made a little money off of this one like Flash game. Um, and then I wanted to sell something like commercially. So I started working on that about mm, the beginning of 2012. And then met Marina Kitaka, who I'd been collaborating with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in January we released it. Um, and we were kind of thinking about how if it did really well, that would be good. So that's kind of what pushed us to really, um, mm-hmm. finish the game and send it to a lot of people. Um, yeah. And I know you got a lot of press, I guess, and we'll talk about this, I guess, towards the end of that, but I was actually really interested to hear, I guess, what tools allowed you to come up with, with, you know, nine months of game development beforehand and then boom, Anodyne, did you use RPG Maker maybe or uh, another game engine that I'm unfamiliar with? Sorry. That's okay. I used um, I used something called Flixel. It's like an action script. So it's based on Flash. Okay. It's an engine for action script 3. And um, I used that for Anodyne, and I had been using it for about mm, about nine months before, using okay. making small games. Mm-hmm. So that really made my life easier when it came to like making Anodyne. Um, oh, I got to look that one up now because, like, I just learned about a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I wouldn't nowadays. I would. I think it's a little outdated. Mm-hmm. Um, Flash, but uh, it was good like six years ago before I think Unity started getting more popular. Mm-hmm. So now I would say like Unity or Game Maker or Construct are like the go-to if you're trying to make a bigger game. Game Maker's actually come a long way from the last time I. I think I have like one point five or one point something. I know they're on like a 2.0 iteration right now. It looks pretty good. Yeah, a lot of people I know use that. Action Script 3 and Flash. Mm. People used to use it a while ago, but now it's not as like... Well, even Adobe isn't using it. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so what was the strategy behind getting your title known out there especially as an indie developer was it just releasing and and preparing shipping and praying or was there more of a um some thought behind it Uh, we did a lot of it worked right i think a lot of anodyne when i try to analyze how it went a lot of it was luck um but we did you know we were advertising on twitter and like a few forums and reddit um, pretty heavily for like the six or about the, the nine months before the release. Um, we sent out that we sent out a demo like six months before, or I think four months before the release to get feedback um, and get people on YouTube to be playing it and talking about it a little bit. Uh, but initially when it came to release, you know, it sold. Okay. Not, not that great. Maybe a couple hundred copies. Um, but the real, there's two really big lucky things. The first thing was this like pirate bay thing, which, you know, I could talk about at length, but um, the gist of it is that I, you know, uploaded Anodyne to a torrent site and then I posted some keys there. I saw someone else do this and then someone on Reddit wrote about it because none, because game developers weren't really doing this at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the owners of the pirate bay contacted me or something or the promo bay and then they ran my game doing a free promotion for like a weekend. Oh, nice. And I combined that with like a pay what you want sale and that got a lot of press. Mm. Um, and at the same time, Steam Greenlight was going on and we had not gotten through yet, but that kind of gave us the push we needed to get through mm. onto Steam. Wow. Um, I actually then, remember, uh, uh, oh, sorry, good. Oh no. The, and then the last part was like, <clears throat> that gave us some notoriety so I could meet with some people at GDC and that gave us like the humble bundle later that year, which is a pretty big um, publicity thing. 
Wow. So when I was first exposed to your game, it was uh, a Kotaku article. They were like a Zelda game that you should be playing or something like that. I remember seeing it on Kotaku. So, uh, yeah, that's like, did you see that same article that I'm referencing? Hold on. Let me pull it up really quick. So I make sure I get it right. Yeah, we'll link it into the blog for people to read it. But obviously the aesthetic was has always been the strength uh or at least the first thing that people get drawn to your games so was that obviously a a a little bit of nostalgia in the game design on on your part or what was the idea behind anodyne that inspired it oh behind the visuals Mm -hmm. Or, or just the gameplay too as well um uh so uh the main thing was when I was starting out Anodyne, I knew that, first of all, I was working on it by myself at first, and I knew that, okay, I have to set some limitations because I'm not a talented visual artist. Um, and so I gave it that very slow, like 160, or how many pixels? 160 by 180 pixel res- resolution. And based it kind of on Game Boy screens with like tile-based art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of a mix of practicality and just an interest in that kind of art style. Um, and that's kind of what the, where the resolution came from. And then the gameplay was just because I kind of liked those small Zelda games and wanted to make my own minimal spin on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say for me, you know, nostalgia factored in a little bit, but most of it, it was, um, just the practicality of that kind of art format and also just my interest in those small little like um yeah. you know screens because they're kind of a nice thing oh yeah let me see that article there's a jason shire blurb but it has video from a while back 2013 oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, five and a half years ago gee like... yeah <laughs> make sure how does it feel looking back at your first project and, you know, being on this side now that you've done the development, you've released it, you've had the marketing push, you've had the sales, I guess, you know, when you look back at it now, you know, it's like your, your golden egg kind of, it's like, it's this polished yeah. piece of art and game that you've put out there in the world. Like after seeing the reception, good or bad, after talking with people about their experiences, I guess, where do you feel like you, uh, where, how does it feel to you now to, I guess, be the creator of this project? I think it's good. Like for a few years while working on our follow-up game, even the ocean, I kind of thought Anodyne was not like that great, but mm-hmm. as I revisit it recently, I think it's like, it's surprisingly like polished and has surprisingly good atmosphere mm-hmm. for like a first big project. Um, yeah. and, um, we definitely want to like, you know, use that success to like our benefit for the future as um, optimally as we can. And so, yeah, we're, now we're like pretty like proud of it. And even the ocean, even the, oh, even the ocean was kind of basically a commercial failure. But um, I think that and like how well Anodyne did are just a very good um, like motivation to plan things better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's just nice to have something that's so like long ago that actually you know, still really does hold up yeah. um, despite some, you know, some of its flaws. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the great thing about stylized games. It always ages well, yeah. especially the retro, even, even we call it retro now, but at the time it was like bleeding edge graphics. Right. Right. But it's stylized enough to be, be called retro and stay yeah. relevant no matter what age. And it, it's a big reason why a lot of indie developers tend to, get drawn towards that um, because gameplay is always at the forefront of things and it has a cool visual style. Yeah. And if you are chasing cutting edge graphics, literally outside of like the 32 bit era, your game is only ever going to look worse as time goes on. Like the appreciation for it. Wow. Like final fantasy seven, it looked real. And then you go back and play, you're like, Oh my God, these FMVs are like, that's not even a material that's just you know oh yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's tough I, have to, I think there's a lot you can learn from like older stuff like that but yeah. you have to like you know look at it with like a contemporary eye and figure out what worked and what didn't like 
Mm-hmm. You kind of hit a little bit on saying the transitions from Anodyne to Eve in the Ocean, uh, saying that that second one was actually a follow-up and it was a commercial failure. Yeah. Would you be able to critically identify maybe one or two concepts that you didn't think were going to be like parts of that game that you thought were going to be better received that weren't, I guess? Um, I think that, that and even the ocean... Yeah, so even the ocean had a few things. First, the first was just the marketing didn't was very bad and not really planned at all. But I think that um, the format of the game was just more repetitive than we had anticipated. So, did have either of you played it at all, or have watched? I haven't played even the ocean. I should just explain it to the viewers, anyway. So, essentially, the idea is that the main gameplay takes place in kind of these like. Um, He's like individual areas. So it'll be like a town and then a, like a power plant. And they're all these like 2d side scrolling areas. Um, but the game is basically that format of area, but copied like nine times. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the areas are very different, but essentially you advance the main story. Then you walk out to the area, go talk to some characters, go to like a power plant and then repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of one of the more, um, I guess the weaker parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then it wasn't too weak of the design. It's, it's a pretty well-designed game overall. And most people or everyone really seemed to like it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's biggest issue was just that the development cycle was too long. We didn't mm-hmm. really plan our schedule ahead very well because we were too comfortable from anodyne's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as a result, we didn't really take marketing seriously and, by the time we try to take marketing seriously, it was kind of like too late. Yeah. Yeah. So Anodyne, you said you were, you first released it as a free game, right? Uh, still, or free, preview. Ah, preview, preview. Okay. Okay. So with the hard lessons learned from even the ocean and then uh, like how, how exactly did you switch it up for your, your follow-up and from the, from everything that you've learned. Oh, for Anodyne too. Second time, yeah. Yeah, the second time. Uh, yeah, well, we've been planning a lot better now. So for one, you know, we've kind of like thought much more seriously about scale. Um, and, I mean, we try to do that with even the ocean, but we didn't really realize um, just what goes into that. Um, so for Anodyne too, you know, we're falling back a bit on our styles that we have done before. So like um, lower fidelity 3d and then like this kind of like game boy pixel art. So that saves us a lot of time. Um, but in general, we're just marketing a lot more seriously. Like we've hired help for marketing and we have plans in terms of what our big announcements are. Um, we didn't really start posting about the game publicly until we had like a small trailer to show. Um and uh, I've actually planned ahead like the next like six months or whatever to try to make sure we actually, you know, release on time because we do have like a budget now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, the game development side of it hasn't changed too much. Um, Anodyne 2 is like pretty different from Anodyne 1, mm-hmm. but it does reuse certain concepts that make it easier for us to kind of like um, develop. Like there is a little bit of overlap in the d- design and in the visual art um but yeah that we're just combining that with like you know a slightly smaller scale and then also basically just better project management and like yeah marketing yeah, i'm really happy to hear that you are taking the lessons in stride and also you mentioning that you did have some safety net from anodyne one to kind of allow you to carry through some of the lessons that you're learning because a lot of the indie devs out there kind of don't have similar success, right? Yeah. Uh, so now let's talk about the other side of that, though. And we ask this question a lot, but it's always valid, which is monster success on an initial product. That fear of like, OK, can we top that or at least do in the ballpark on the next one? You know, was the expectation to try to repeat the success on the same level or, you know, was that even part of the game plan? Like, was there any even expectation for how well you wanted the game to do uh, for the second one? And then now same question for anodyne too because you're going back to the the game that was very popular very successful for your company to now offer a new introduction of a second version do you then 
attack those same expectations of, okay, we want it to be like in the ballpark of the same or the first one that we made as well, you know? So how are you handling, I guess, trying to catch lightning in a bottle the second time? And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Like, I think I don't really expect that Anodyne 2 will, because Anodyne was really like a lot of like, uh, luck based it was just good timing it was good timing of steam good timing of humble um and uh yeah that was basically like just a lot of luck with the release so i don't think we would be able to replicate anodyne's success but um uh well when it came to even the ocean we did expect it to do really well but i think we were kind of just like fooling ourselves into feeling better at the time um because by all accounts, I, was, I mean, it's obvious it was going to be like, like a, you know, it wasn't a complete commercial failure. Like we still sold like, I don't know, like $30,000 the first year. So it's not like no one bought the game, but like, um, you know, it wasn't like a yeah. hit out of the park. Okay. Um, yeah. It's like a single or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah. But for Anodyne 2, yeah, I'm not expecting it to like, do amazing so anodyne one did like how much in the first year maybe like almost two hundred thousand dollars the first year congrats man thanks a lot of that was humble bundle though so even still yeah that's true so that lasted for a while so i mean you know we're not hoping for that kind of success because i don't think it's necessarily feasible nowadays but we are aiming for like you know trying to make at least uh, you know, I think I think something somewhere like fifty to sixty thousand, mm-hmm. not copies. <laughs> I wish no, no, on the yeah, first yeah. year, yeah. you know, that would be a really good amount because it would give it would buy us some like extra development time on top of all the passive income we already have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're just trying to like kind of uh improve our chances the best we can through like you know, hiring outside marketing help. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have these people coming in who've worked on like, you know, 30 projects in 30 indie projects and they're helping to like, you know, they're like finding a ton of like past writers of Anodyne, even the ocean, all our Asia's, our games. And then, you know, they'll help communicating all that like good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're, yeah. So basically we know we're not going to have that gigantic, well, probably won't have that gigantic level of success, but, um, you know, to try and ensure at least a modest success, you know, we're doing everything we can and really mm-hmm. thinking about what didn't work or what was luck with previous games, what didn't work, et cetera. So after um, talking to more and more indie developers, what Larry and I have learned is that the passive income, the streaming revenue for any developer uh, has always been like past games and the long tail end of their previous projects, which I feel like, yeah, new indie developers that would come into the game, especially from the AAA industry, would put all their eggs in one basket in the first project, stink or swim, and then whatever the result is, they react from that and they just leave the indie if it fails yeah. and don't rely on like, well, let's give it another two years to cook or like continuously try to market it or change platforms for that same game, mm-hmm. maybe to a new audience and, and continuously try to hack away at it. Was this something that you've learned on the way? Obviously with Anodyne success, you guys have a lot more leg room to try new things at the same time, you know, still think like a businessman with your new projects. How yeah. has that affected you guys over the years? Just knowing that, all right, we have cascading revenue from previous projects that we can rely on. Um, yeah, like, so for even the ocean, that was kind of like a, you know, passion dream project for Anodyne. And I, and I did work on, uh, you know, all our ages on my own, which was kind of an like, experimental, like, you know, mm-hmm. didn't expect to really sell anything at all game. Um, but yeah, with Anodyne 2 and, you know, we need to, I guess the way I view it is, um, we do, we are really lucky because we have passive income from two games and we have console ports out or coming out, which is a little bit more, it's not a ton of money, but it's like, you know, 
everything helps. Um, oh yeah. So we definitely have to plan around like, you know, always trying to, and I guess I can see why so many big companies do like HD remakes because it's like, you have to kind of revive your passive <laughs> income every now and then as much as you can. Um, so for Anodyne, we do those ports. Um, and the way I view it for like, uh, like Anodyne 2 is that, you know, if we want, Anodyne 2 is kind of a mix of, you know, some conservatism and experimentalism because we are reviving a previous IP. But mm. the way we view it is that, you know, if we take advantage of an existing, you know, um, existing like brand. So I guess this is why people do sequels a lot. Mm. That really helps with like capturing an existing audience. Mm-hmm. And my thought is that if we can more practically manage the schedule of this game, and use the existing brand name recognition, um, then even if Amazon 2 only does modestly well, then that passive income combined with the previous two games, you know, that can give us enough to maybe do something, uh, either hire extra help or do something a little bit weirder. I mean, Amazon 2 is pretty weird, actually. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it, it does have a lot of, like, kind of, like, traditional, like, gameplay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way I kind of think it is, you know, if we don't have, you know, a good passive income being kind of increased over time or coming in, then we have to go to do more part-time work mm-hmm. or full-time work, mm-hmm. um, which means less time for kind of working on stuff. And, you know, part-time work is good for like meeting other people and talking and stuff, but mm-hmm. you can also do that without working. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so Anodyne 2 is, you know, it's a creative project, but we're also like thinking ahead and how, you know, we would like to spend a year doing something that maybe we wouldn't have thought of doing a few years ago if it means that, um, one, we can establish this like brand Anodyne that we can come back to over the next few years if we need to, right? Um, while interweaving it with more experimental stuff. So mm-hmm. I'd like to jump in if you don't mind. So we're kind of talking about passive income streams and revenue. And we all know it's 2018. And you said this site like Pirate Bay exists, you know, torrent sites. Have you had to combat any sort of, you know, pirating of your games, like taking big chunks out of your revenue streams? You know, is that had, has that been something that you guys have had to overcome yet in your company career? Uh, no, not, not yet. Um, I get the sense Congrats. that uh, yeah. <laughs> I get the sense that that become. I mean, there has been piracy of all of our games, basically. Uh, okay. um, but uh, I get the sense that you know, I don't know about AAA companies, but as far as indies go, it's like relatively minor. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that you know if you. You know, if you're not doing really well and you go and you enter a bunch of like shady bundles, then surprise, your game might end up on uh, whatever that site is. Um, Mega upload or something. Yeah, that or like, um, what's the key reseller? Any one of those like reselling key sites? Yeah. Mm. I don't uh, know. See, I have no idea. I have no idea of that world. <laughs> the indie not even doing uh, black market. Week. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole like black market for like Steam for like. Um, Steam keys. Oh my god! I have to say this, right? The black market for the indie games. That's so are, are like real pieces of shit, man. It's like yeah. you're already prying on the little guys. Like you're basically picking at corpses right now. Yeah, essentially. Like I'm not. I'm sorry. Oh no, no. I was wondering because you two have like tri- like a lot of AAA experience. Yeah. You know, they never talk a lot about piracy for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah leaks suck obviously uh working at activision the company we worked for had a big leak on the game that they worked on before ours uh but there's always going to be people who get the copies early try to duplicate try to crack play single player not online you know you don't lose as much money as activision would feel i would say because they're still going to sell like a billion copies of call of duty but I know Activision wants every penny that they deserve. <laughs> so <Right>. two <laughs> copies was too many. You yeah. know? The perk about not um, enjoying all the fruits of the labor, like how Activision, you know, it's not like we get 100% of royalty as in regular employees, right? 
So the the upside of that is that you know we don't get as the hurt as much when there is like a leak or something. You know, mm-hmm. we still get paid our salary. We still go to work and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think it affects Papa Bear, Papa Bobby more. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the good thing. But as an indie developer, that's all you, man. That's yeah. you as a developer. Your yeah. blood and sweat, and people are just. So- you can't that's pay like five bucks, 20 bucks. Come on, man. <laughs> that's what I was segueing into uh, just right before we started, because remember go play games. I was making iPhone games. Mm-hmm. I was so heartbroken the day that I saw like our latest release oh, had like 800 copies downloaded on a free site. And I was like, we've been working on this game for so long, right? Like we've been eating pizza and ramen and, you know, we were just a bunch of unemployed college kids trying to make some money. And there was like 800 downloads. Now, granted, I don't know if those were all would have been paid customers, right? Like there's right. some give and take in there, but 800 legitimate copies of the game that people were playing out in the world did not bring any revenue into the people who were like mm-hmm. really trying to, you know, pay rent and be game developers at the same time. That was, that was a tough day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, awesome. yeah. Like that kind of thing. I think it's maybe the worst the first time, but afterwards you're kind of just like, well, yeah, you know it's an it's an inevitability, and yeah. um, I think a lot of time the people who pirate are like they're like either kids or like you know they're in a country where it's like actually an exorbitant amount of money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like well, that's just you know how things are, and it's and I only have so much time as an indie developer, so I can either worry about this a lot mm-hmm. um, or ignore it or try to get press out of it, which right. <laughs> there you yeah. go. And I think um, that's the best attitude yeah. towards something like that. You like, how do I use this to my advantage? It's going to yeah. happen, especially like I would say piraters are not going to ever pay. Right. <laughs> so yeah. using it as a marketing opportunity might be very helpful. Mm-hmm. To kind of, you know, throw an ad in there to buy some t-shirts at least or some cups that is affordable. <laughs> the, the unbeatable the game, You know, but maybe somehow bringing them back into a mailing list or something. Exactly. Man. That you yeah. have some kind of communication. Yeah. Continue somehow that later down the line, yeah, at the very beginning, you won't sell them the game. But later down the line, they might buy into like how nice you are about them yeah. ripping you off. That's there might be something there. Just, that's what we did for for anodyne like uh, i've gotten a few emails over the years that were like sorry that i pirated it back then or whatever blah blah blah. but they ha- you sometimes they have a pretty good reason i was like yeah it's fine like you know if you had no money like whatever you can like, i don't care that's fine it's mm-hmm. um, nice that someone would write a sorry letter for pirating you know what i mean like it yeah it's like yeah. interesting things to like fine yeah that's fine. it reminds me of how like member half-life 2 leaked and oh. like they to catch the guy that you know Gabe Newell like offered him a job and as he showed up <laughs> FBI like tagged him I was just like so what I'm Damn. saying Sean <laughs> if you want to really get this guy <laughs> coffee oh lord find it in the FBI yeah dude what a boss move for you <laughs> boss move that's man. hilarious that TV show yeah, yeah. Well, hackers, man, you you stroke their ego. They're all about ego, right? Right. Uh, invite them in, you catch them, idiot. <laughs> hey guys, why don't we take a break and hear from our sponsors? Dang, dude, your your scene's looking pretty sharp, but it, it's like it's getting faster and faster that you're working on this kind of stuff. I usually it takes you a while, but you know you cleared a whole room in like the last hour. I was watching over your shoulder. What's going on? This is all thanks to Quixel Megascans, the photogrammetry program from Quixel that allows me to use photogrammetry textures and assets to put into my scene. It's as easy as drag and drop, and it's something that you, I, anybody in the game industry can use right now. Oh, nice. Well, where do I go and find out more about Quixel and Megascans? Go to megascans.se. You can use our promo code GDU. That gives you 30% off for the first three months. But what exactly do I get if I use that promo code? You get a couple apps, right? Megascans is a library, so uh, they update that every week. Also, you have uh, Quixel Mixer that allows you to kind of customize your own textures using their library. And the Quixel Bridge that allows you to uh, easily integrate it into Unreal Engine or Unity. It's going to be really helpful for you. So if you want to be able to use photorealistic art, 
in your games, in your architectural previs, in whatever 3D projects you're working on, and you need high-level, top-quality-looking art, you can definitely go to Quixel Suite, get Mega Scans. You can use Bridge, and you can also use Mixer. That's a heavy combination, and it's available for less money than it normally costs. So exactly. definitely use our code. You get your make, subscription now. Yeah, and you yes. can make art that looks like Brandon's. Exactly. So uh, obviously, Larry and I were uh, brought to you uh by our previous guest nina freeman and she uh commented on uh all our asia's uh ps1 graphics right retro graphics now so we're at that age where a bunch of a new crop of 30 year olds are reminiscing about their good old days (laughs) and getting nostalgic right so a lot of 90s like stuff is starting to pop up um so what was your uh, inspiration for creating and adopting the PS1 graphics into a style, uh, basically, in, in all your, your games now? Yeah, like the PS1 era graphics, I mean, a lot of them look terrible, right? Uh, but <laughs> again, with like the retro like pixel art thing, um, you know, in recent years, 3D has become very accessible for indie developers. And uh, a lot of people are turning to kind of these HD styles, which are, you know, they look great, but mm-hmm. they might be kind of hard to do on a budget. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of inspired by a lot of, you know, there's there's been a lot of people who do a lot of like lo-fi, which is the word I'm calling it, like lo-fi looking 3D stuff. Mm-hmm. That's usually non-commercial over the past like 10 10, 20 years, whatever. Um, and so I was kind of inspired by that and trying to think about, you know, oh, what makes what makes like these old graphics so interesting? And can I pull out the aspects that are nice about that and then create a, a 3D art style myself without, you know, using some of the limitations that made them look bad. Like, so if you look mm-hmm. like some, if you look at some text and, you know, like textures on like the PS1, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they like, you know, I, I'm pretty generous when it comes to like um, experimental art styles, but like some stuff looks pretty bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for all our ages, I was kind of just like, okay, you know, I would like to help be part of the trend of getting developers to think about 3D art styles that are very old and what can be very useful about them. So they can be really good for like surreal art. They can be really good for abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um they can be do really interesting things of representing like actual urban natural spaces, mm-hmm. um, conveying different things. And so for all our ages, I kind of like, I took a very minimal approach that still allowed me to kind of make things look okay. Even though I'm uh, obviously not a 3d modeler, <laughs> um, though I can like, I, I can, I know my way around like blender a little bit, but I'm not like, uh, not going to be on the job market anytime soon. <laughs> um, but so I mean, I job is safe, Brandon. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> so I was thinking, like, um, you know, how can I make something that's interesting and has a very like strong like style? And I found that like, you know, with 3D, if you're consistent and you kind of like pick a style and stick to it, you know, you can actually like trick a lot of people into that. Um, the art looks pretty good. <laughs> I mean, obviously they're not going to be like, damn you know it's not going to be comparable to like uh wolfenstein that new one that looks like real life or whatever but um you know you can get people to think it looks nice Mm -hmm. because it does because if it's consistent it's nice as long as like you keep yourself within some rules i mean it definitely looks on purpose yeah if you're like really trying to go high fidelity and you're pumping out ps1 graphics it's like ah dude it's like why (laughs) why are you doing that to yourself gotta hire a few more people (laughs) yeah you gotta what are you doing but like there's definitely i think you're you're starting a trend man i think there's gonna be a lot of games coming out with this the lo-fi renaissance the lo-fi renaissance i hope so yeah, yeah, lo-fi renaissance. I like that word. I'm gonna uh, coin Take it. I'm trying to get a talk at GDC about it, but you know, it depends if they accept it or not. I'm but, sure, um, man. It's a huge thing. Yeah. So, uh, we were mentioning before, hum- humble bundle is something that everyone knows. Yeah. But as a developer, I know nothing about. Like, if I want to be a part of that, I have a faint idea, but I don't. 
really have any details on how it impacts a game uh, such as yours or any individual uh, games out there? Like, how what is the process like? How big is it in terms of sales? Um, just how 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 good it is for your project and. Yeah. How long do you actually get attached to that after your game is out? Mm. So I can speak, you know, I'm going to pull up Humble Bundle right now because I saw a few friends games. Um, so Humble Bundle has always had like three tier. Uh, I think that's changed over the past five years because their management yeah. structure has really changed. Yeah, it's different now. Yeah. Their inception. Like I remember. Tiered, though. Yeah, there's like there's I don't know if they do. the. I don't think they do the Humble Indie Bundle anymore. Um. Like, okay, so right now they have, uh, let's see, uh, they have a humble, overwhelmingly positive bundle, and that seems like it's on the scale of, like, a humble indie bundle almost, a little bit smaller. So, like, when we did it, we did a bundle that made about, um, the bundle made about a million dollars total, and wow. 10% of that goes to humble and then the rest is split amongst like the 10 or nine people. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think at that time, that was kind of like a mid-tier um, bundle. Like there was still like the humble indie bundle brand mm-hmm. that would make a little bit more, maybe one and a half to two million. Um, and I'm not sure if they still have those. They might. But now it seems like they have like small tier bundles. So like there's this humble discovery bundle going on now, which is probably going to make, you know, maybe $200,000. So each person in it will make about 20 K. Mm-hmm. Um, but in return that, you know, they have to, they're basically, um, the trade-off, right. Is that you're selling these copies basically for a dollar yeah. um, more or less. That's how it usually works out. And it doesn't really matter the tier of your bundle. You're going to be making about a dollar per copy. So, um, Surprisingly, that hasn't really changed over the years. I've just found that Humble seems to have grown a lot since mm. five years ago. Yeah. So now they do so many things. Um, personally, um, I found that uh, uh, I think you, if you want to be in a bundle now, you have to be a little bit more proactive because um, I think they're a lot bigger and a lot busier. Um, I know that a lot of the people I used to know from humble, like they're not there anymore. Um, I think they moved on to different jobs. Um, so it seems like the bundles are still like selling pretty well, but you, they don't seem to carry that like brand name signifier as they did five years ago. Like now it's kind of like something you do a year or two into the game's lifespan in order to kind of like give it a tiny little marketing push. Cause even though you're selling these copies for like a dollar, that's still going to get a bunch of players on steam. People are friends are going to see what their friends are playing. You're going to get a little bit of boost. Um, uh, yeah, but um, you know, back in like the beginning of the decade, it was very like, it was pretty prestigious and I think it still is, but um, uh, I think, you know, now perhaps the bundles are not as big as they used to be. Right. Um, but the, the, the trade-off is that, you know, you're going to get a ton of your keys on pirate sites because a lot of these get resold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, per copy, you don't make a lot. But, you know, it can be a nice little cash boost for a while. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other unorthodox kind of marketing strategies that you continuously use now? Like, for example, you said with your first game, you kind of put it on the key site with free keys to give away and it was at the time something that other people weren't doing and you saw success from that is that now so is that part of your marketing plan now and if not do you have like that unorthodox like hey you know i i actually print index cards and hand them out as i talk to people or i you know i have some other sort of guerrilla style tactic for marketing my stuff now i think uh, i don't really have a lot of marketing success (laughs) but i've been um those were a lot of those were but I find that the pattern tends to just kind of be if you do see some kind of opportunity, you know, you just go ahead and, and take it. You know, you don't really want to wait. Um, I don't know how popular the pirate bay thing would be nowadays. I might try it again. Maybe I'll try it for even the ocean because I don't think I actually did it for even the ocean. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's go check right now. I don't actually know how to access the pirate bay. <laughs> oh, it's an org still. Um, Bookmark. <laughs> 
want that loaded. Legal things from the Pirate Bay. So yeah, Torn sites. <laughs> anybody who wants to see our podcast, yeah, <laughs> like it's a sharing tool. Yeah. Yeah. People can um, like, but for marketing stuff, I think it's just um, mm, so we tried something for Eve in the Ocean, but it was kind of a silly gimmick, so it didn't really work. Um, I'm not gonna bother explaining it, but for for <laughs> Anatine too, um, you know, I think the marketing can be like you know reaching out to certain early platforms or um. Like now it seems like there's not as many chances for gimmicks unless it's really ties into your game in a certain way. Like, um, Aether interactive. Um, oh yeah, you should get some of them on get, have you heard of local hosts or sub serial network? I think I've heard of local serial. Yeah. That's, that's my recommendation for the next person to interview. Um, okay. it's, it's these two people, uh, Mathilde park and, Penelope Evans, who run this studio in Canada, and they make these really experimental narrative games. And um, uh, I'm not sure how like commercially successful they are, but they have done some interesting things. Like for one game called um, Arc Symphony, right? Okay, I was going to say Arc Interactive, which is not right. But basically, they made a fake like PS1 game cartridge mm. or, or like um, CD thing, and sent, sent it to a bunch of developers and got them to talk about it, and that, they got some press that way. Oh. that's kind of like a clever idea yeah um but nowadays you know i think it's i think that's why it's good to like hire help because they can dedicate someone to thinking about these things um but in addition to that you know it's just you know you got to just constantly be making your own luck right like you gotta you know so we have a mailing list we, we try to push players to by having links inside of the game not not all over the game just the title screen mm-hmm. um you know, newsletter. Okay, so like, we get a newsletter. We have like a Discord. We're updating development logs, and then we're also posting updates like a couple times a week to like Twitter or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just ensuring that we get as many eyes on the project as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's only a good thing because then if you occasionally you do think of a really interesting gimmick, that can only increase the success of it. Um, okay. Although, yeah, I don't think the pirate bathing would really work as well now i'm not sure how if the promo bay is still even a thing Mm -hmm. um but you know doesn't hurt to try one last question that's related to the previous question what would you say is your number one most popular or most leads generated free resource that you use for marketing so like you said you post on reddit maybe you'll get like 40 50 comments i don't know you make a tweet maybe you get 50 retweets, 60 retweets. Like, I guess, which is your like tried and true, like most dependable free thing that you can do to market your game? Um, free, I think just Twitter is, Twitter is probably best. the most invaluable because Reddit, the issue with Reddit is that you can't really advertise there. You have to kind of, the way it's set up is you have to consistently be part of the community. And so, but even then, you know, if you post your project, in like a screenshot Saturday thread on Reddit, it's gonna get mixed in there with like thirty other games, yeah. and yeah. you, you know. So I think, and as far as Anodyne went, I don't think I think it maybe helped a little bit, but now, uh, you know, I've tried it a few times, but no one really seems to comment anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Twitter, you know, Twitter is great because if you just post, if you just so what I do is I actually have two personas on Twitter. Um, <laughs> one is kind of like the public side for like mm. games. And the other is just, you know, if I was having a regular Twitter and mm. for years they used to be combined and I realized, okay, well my follower account has flatlined for two years and I'm wasting a very valuable resource. So, so now I have a Twitter that's just for like very rarely I will kind of retweet a friend's game or some important like news. But usually it's just a few times a week I'm posting content about Anodyne too. And, you know, you get a lot of retweets, a lot of favorites, a lot of follows on there. Um, and that's just probably been one of the most useful things. Um, Good to know. Yeah, I would say with t- Twitter, like it, they don't ha- they don't pollute it with the algorithm stuff. So you still see the recents. You still have control over it somewhat. You know, it's all about timing. Everything else yeah. has been... 
you can't even guess what they're doing with things. Yeah. You just send it out there. And it's just <laughs> at the bottom of the pile already. It's like, what's going on? Yeah. yeah like Facebook's pretty shady. Like really um, bad, dude. Like I have, I have an Andine page of like 5,000 likes. But the thing is that I think a lot of those are fake because I have a friend at Facebook and she's, she's, um, she's really helpful because she gets all these free ad credits and gives them to me. Um, so I think we get some legitimate people, but we get a ton of like fake people. And so I have no idea like how many of these 5,000 are like real people. Yes. Um, totally but, you know it's a thing we have so i post on it anyways because you know if i make there, yeah. if i make the content for marketing you know i might as well yeah but um yeah twitter is a lot easier to know like what's legit because as you see followers coming in you can check them and um you know i think twitter's ads used to be a lot worse back in the day but now they do a lot better at not getting bots mm-hmm. um so one question for me. So you were mentioning about porting or uh, we, we've seen like the switch is becoming pretty hot to port a lot of older projects, right? Oh, yeah. And it's been doing, it's it's like the go-to uh, device now for a lot of gamers really to kind of be the portable device to play games on. Well, can you comment on like what that landscape is looking like right now? And if you see it slowing down soon or, or anything like that? Uh, I think, um, let's see. So I think the biggest, I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to make the most money, then you better be like, you better have a Nintendo contact before the switch is even announced. Mm-hmm. So the prime, the prime window is obviously like completely gone, but um, there's still like, it's still a pretty good market. People really, I don't know. Personally, I don't get why people like the thing. Like it hurts my hands like crazy. Maybe I could <laughs> use the computer all day, but have you ever held one of those things trying to play? It's like it's tiny. Like a 30 pound handheld or something. Yeah. You need a bodybuilder to like play that. Anyways. Um, you gotta look like Larry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Larry looks hilarious with it because he has huge hands. <laughs> so it's like so tiny. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous was that your switch no no i was just that Um, that was his ipad dude uh, i love the little um i love the little controllers though those are nice to just play with only those but anyways um like i know some friends who have released and uh you know they they tend to sell like a couple thousand copies so Mm -hmm. uh you know if you make your game in under a year that could be good and Mm -hmm. um it's definitely not like you know, beginning of the decade steam in terms of how good it is. But yeah. uh, I think if you have an existing, like, it seems like a really good thing to just pair with a PC release. Right. Like, um, because I, I do see some games that I wouldn't expect to sell really well, like still selling like decently, like a you know a couple thousand copies in the first month on switch. Oh, nice. Um, and if you have an existing, you know, brand, you know, sticking on there is nice because everyone, I don't know, people really want Switch. Like, there's people at my dad's workplace who, who he's always telling them, like, you know, my game's on PS4, game's on Xbox. And now they're like, oh, is it on Switch? I'm like, not yet. But, um, you know, if it's like, I'm surprised. I feel like the consoles are kind of like equally good. Maybe Nintendo Switch might have more like popularity on Twitter, but. Mm. Uh, actually, you know, when it comes to Xbox PS4, Xbox is actually outselling PS4 a little bit, which is a complete surprise for me when it comes to Anodyne. Right. So I think an interesting thing about consoles is that the market for consoles does, can, you know, be totally different from what you're used to on Twitter because Twitter is usually like Windows and I guess Nintendo stuff. No, so I'm sorry. I, I have a slight theory because <laughs> maybe Microsoft isn't... <laughs> Isn't shipping any games on Xbox, so oh, everybody's shit. hungry for content. Oh, uh, that's a good <laughs> in the store, just downloading anything they can get. Yeah, like oh, this looks good. It's- yeah, imagine being an Xbox fan right now, man. Like Switch is having fun. Like you see the Switch players like having fun. <laughs> you look to your left, the PS4 players are like talking about like Spider Man, and then you're sitting there, Xbox. I have no idea that what they've been releasing in the last six months. 
Oh yeah. Exclusive wise, I can't think of any. Yeah. Um, so that Forza, might be you might be on Forza. Yeah, you might be on to something like this little uh little nuclear <laughs> nuclear uh holocaust that they're having. It's it's, yeah, it's it's a prime time for a lot of indie developers to pour over because yeah. And that's the great thing about Unity is just that you get you know, you kind of get easy access to all these platforms through porting. Like Anodyne was tough. Even the ocean will be tough because people people who are porting them are like to you know, it's a hard technical feat, but Unity is easier. Um, so I'm just looking at the Gamefly, what's up new on Xbox One, and like, yeah, everything is definitely like also on PS4. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think some indies are going to be exclusive for a while on Xbox One, but uh, they're smart, right? Because, you know, they're still going to release on PS1, on P- I mean, on P- PC, mm-hmm. but yeah. they're going to get some marketing support on Xbox. Yeah. So, like, I know. I think Ooblets is doing it and uh, Tunic. Have you heard of those two? I heard, yeah, Tunic, yeah. yeah. I think those are both going to be exclusives for a while. Mm-hmm. That's smart because they'll give you like money up front. And, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a very good point that you're making. Xbox is very hungry. Yeah. And they might be out of the three the most approachable yeah. in terms of getting some finance. Yeah. Basically, like, who needs help and like you yourself as a developer, you need money and then you need to find, you know, business stuff. It's like, who, whose platform can I support? And, you know, can they also support me? So like, um, discord just made a gaming platform, but they seem very hard to approach or like they're very swamped. And yeah, um, I would like to know your thoughts on that. I mean, discord obviously has, Millions and millions of people using the service. I think they're very smart to pivot and put a storefront. Uh, they just need to buy some uh, internet servers and now they're selling games. Do you feel Discord being like a huge contender to pretty much how early Steam was for any developers out there? Uh, the thing is, I don't know how their store... Doesn't Twitch sell games now or... They do does, deals. Does Twitch really sell games? They're they're partnered with like Amazon or something. Yeah, they are but, partnered with Amazon. You know, I guess that they're they're a good point of reference in terms of like you no, know, even though that's the case, they're not really a store competitor. And I think the same thing is with Discord. Um, Discord is they're framing themselves as a store, but I think that they're really they're more doing it just to kind of like. Um, um, I don't think their intention is to be a store, but their intention is to kind of like pick games that are already performing well that are indie games and then also sell them there because they're strong communities. Mm. Uh, Discord, from what I've talked to them, I don't think they really have an interest in small games like HIO or like the recent cartridge that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, their worldview seems to be more that like the games that exist are very popular indie games like Hollow Knight and um, AAA games. Mm-hmm. And in that worldview, you see a game like Hollow Knight as being underplayed. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that game as being obscure. Um, and so their view is to try and curate those obscure games. Um, now, I think, depending on where you come from, Hollow Knight is not very obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh and so that's so for me, I get the sense of Discord is that you know they're definitely doing a smart thing in terms of business, um, but I don't think it's going to ever become a competitor to mm-hmm. Steam or you know whatever because um, it's it's going to be like a it's very it's very like curated and yeah. people aren't going to be like oh is it going to be on Discord because if a lot of games aren't getting on Discord then no one's going to be thinking it will be on discord um yeah. it might just be a pleasant surprise but that's just a prediction discord is pretty popular so yeah discord is definitely very popular i feel like they have a huge ui problem <laughs> which kind of hinders their storefront like i i see the storefront as the first thing that you know when i open discord i it, it pops up but i immediately go to my other tabs <laughs> because it's so noisy it's just all over the place and Wait, they have a store already 
Yeah, they have a Discord store. It's the first thing that pops up. See, that's the thing. It's just it just looks like noise. If you're in multiple communities, they need to fix that stack, that ugly ass circle with the stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just they need they have a UI problem, so they need to fix that before they even promote anything. Because um, yeah, even Steam has 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 gone through many iterations to fix their their interface but i i feel still i still feel pretty heavy when i open up steam like it just feels loaded with a lot of stuff i don't know exactly the best way to do it i think apple was probably the best mm-hmm. turnaround i've ever seen a company with like so much content and now they just streamline it into like a blog and it's just i'm seeing one thing at a time and it's yeah. just that that was a situation where they had a lot of shit and they were able to uh, curate it basically to make it more uh, quenchable. Yeah. So I, you know, a lot of these other services are still figuring out that, that problem. The way that I look at the Apple stores changes, especially for the games and apps is um, user experience has gone up even if total views or impressions generated has gone down, everybody appreciates better the flow through finding new apps and finding new things. And I think that that ends up being the long-term benefit that they get to enjoy. The developers get to enjoy at least the ones that make it onto those curated lists. Yeah. The overcrowded app store now is even has like a gatekeeper tier of like, Oh sure. You're on the app store, but did you make it to the curated list? Cause that's yeah. Like, from what I can hear, like um, the app store is like, yeah, if you have to like know someone or reach out, otherwise you're just oh, wasting yeah. your time. You gotta reach out. You gotta reach around. <laughs> but, I mean, it's like <laughs> but it's like that, you know. Like for most most stores, like um, like PS4 and Nintendo, it helps if you've met someone from there, you know, who can kind of like speak for you. It's just. Yeah. I don't know how things go. It's maybe not the most just thing, but it's just how things work. Wheels need to get greased. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there. That's the thing I hear a lot from. There's a developer who does a lot of marketing I talked to over the year, and he's always like, "Yeah, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right?" So it's like, you know, you should just be, Mm -hmm. just always be asking, be polite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll end it with this question. So as a any developer, what are the go-to communities, either online or conventions, that you have to be a part of to be successful? Um, I would say for conventions, if you are not an established name and like you're just starting out, like and you and you want to, um, or I guess I should put it this way: if you're interested in actually making money in games um first of all think about that very carefully oh. <laughs> but, if you're, but if you get past that step and you're like okay i really want to you need to go to gdc at least once or twice GDC, like yeah. but you shouldn't go until you have some games out online mm-hmm. because the point of going is to make like a few friends who can kind of like again you know this is just the same thing as working with consoles or working with Steam, whatever, Alpha Apple, you have to have some people who will kind of like fight for you, I guess, mm-hmm. in, the, in the market, who will know you beyond just the gifts you post. So I already did that like, you know, two or three years ago, although I've been thinking about going back to some conferences, but like GDC is really good because there's, you know, you, you don't even have to like pay for the conference. You can just go outside and meet people mm-hmm. um, as long as you have like a small group to actually go there with. Um, you got to like, yeah, if you if you want to make a career, you got to do GDC because you can set up a lot of meetings there if you need to. Um, it really helps get you established. Although I think in a lot of big cities, there's local events, but um, as all like with conventions, it's just like you need to have a plan. And if you have a plan, you can usually meet a lot of people and our publishers or whatever. Um, for online stuff, a lot of people ask me for advice, and I just tell them like you got to use Twitter. And use Twitter and join a forum if you don't know anyone yet. Because Twitter is fine, but if you, you can't just start on Twitter, right? Because no one's going to see your stuff. You got to like, Twitter is a marketing tool. I mean, it's communication for a lot of people, but for like brands and stuff, it's, commun- it's a marketing tool. 
But if you don't have an audience, it's completely useless. So to get the audience somewhere, you got to like start in a, like a forum based community. So like I tell a lot of people go to Waypoint, um, Tig Source, you can still go to Tig Source and it's fine. Um, I think the, the quality of, uh, the commenters on Tig Source is not always the best, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like, you know, if you can do it for fun, you know, just meet a few people in your city and make friends. But if you want to make money, you got to like start thinking about it. You've been podcasting with us, Sean, for over an hour. And like I said to you behind the curtain before we started this episode, podcasting with us for an hour means you get to talk directly to our audience to shout out, promote or broadcast something very important to you, something that you want to raise awareness for. Or if you have a shout out for a very special person in your life, this is your opportunity to do so. Brandon and I are going to step away from the microphone. We're going to give you the control board and you can just go nuts. And so without okay. further ado, the floor is yours. So, okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. So shout out to people. Um, shout out to Marina, who's my person working on the game with me. Um, very good artist and writer. Uh, oh, she'd be worth talking to, too. Um, shout out to Sandy, my spouse, who's in the other room, who has a lot of good feedback and tips. Um, and uh, as for self-advertising... Um, okay, okay, I guess we can just keep shouting people. Uh, shout out to past students who have taught a lot through teaching them. You know, you learn a lot in that process. Um, shout out to all like past fans of Anodyne and even the ocean and stuff. Um, and also if you're watching this for the first time, you know, definitely check out Anodyne 2 Return to Dust, which we are working on now. It's a mix of, you know, PlayStation 1 3D and Game Boy 2D stuff. And that'll be out on PC and maybe consoles in April or May next year. Um, and you can learn a lot about that by just searching Anodyne 2. Or you can search my name, Sean Hantani, uh, and find out stuff on Twitter. And be sure to join our mailing list and our Discord, which you maybe can find in the video description below. You will find it in the description below. You will, find you will freaking find it. All right, I already did my rhyme. <laughs> Good night. This is Brandon Fan. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you. So thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope that you're a subscriber, but if you aren't, please feel free to follow us on any of the major podcast platforms, especially iTunes or Spotify. You can find show notes and more resources available to help you become a successful game developer. Just go on over to our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. If you're interested in keeping the conversation going, then definitely come check us out in Discord where we chat in real time for After Show Tuesdays to discuss episodes and Feedback Fridays where we share screenshots on the projects that we're currently working on. If you go over to Patreon.com, you can support our podcast financially. And if you do so, you get access to Life Unchained, our on-the-pulse, unfiltered game dev gossip content that we make exclusively for our Patreon supporters. And as usual, you can keep in touch and follow our happenings on Facebook and Twitter. That's Game Dev Unchained, the podcast.